Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Should we be silent and not speak? Our raiment and state of bodies would betray what life we have led since thy exile. Think with thyself. How more unfortunate than all living women are we come hither? Since that thy sight, which should make our eyes flow with joy, hearts dance with comforts, constrains them weep and shake with fear and sorrow, making the mother, wife and child to see the son, the husband and the father tearing his country's bowels out. And we must find an evident calamity, though we had our wish which side should win, for either thou must as a foreign recreant be led with manacles throughout streets, or else triumphantly tread on thy country's ruin and bear the palm for having bravely shed thy wife and children's blood. Hi, and welcome to The Plays The Thing. This is Act 5 of Coriolanus. I am Tim McIntosh, and I am joined, as always, on this uh, for this play, Sarah Jane Bentley. Sarah Jane, we have arrived at the conclusion, the concluding act of this play that you and I love so much. Congratulations. Did the trip feel long or short to you? I think it's been as rapid of, as one of Coriolanus's military campaigns. Mm-hmm. It has, it has felt very quick. I think both of us were looking forward to this. And last, last time that we recorded, we kind of got off the air and said, oh my goodness, we're already at Act 5. How did this happen so quickly? It has gone fast. It's not an especially short really play fast. either. No, it's not. It's almost prolix. Um, we will have one more episode, listeners, after this. And that episode, of course, will be the Q&A episode. So uh, be ready, and I will give you the ways how. Uh, be ready to send us 
through the Facebook page, the Close Reads Facebook page, any questions you might have for Sarah Jane and I to cover on the very last episode of Coriolanus. So Sarah Jane, I want to kind of go back to the beginning of the play and ask you to remind us, why is this play titled Coriolanus? It's easy to forget that Coriolanus's name is actually Martius Caius, which is a, a name that resonates with war. Yeah. He's called Coriolanus because he wins the day at the Battle of Coriolis against the Volscans and as a mark of honour is given the name of the city to use as his own. Yes. And that name is stripped from him at the end of Act 3. Yeah. And so now in Act 5, we're dealing with this kind of nothing, this titleless military hero who wants revenge. Yeah, a vagabond general uh, who has been exiled from Rome, his motherland, and is now with Ophidius in Antium. And he's marshaled his forces at the beginning of Act 5, and he is prepared to march on Rome. Um, so in the first scene of Act 5, Sarah Jane, what, what's the mood back in Rome? Kind of like help us set the scene as we dive into this act. What's the mood back in Rome? They're in a sense of complete panic and Rome is more divided than ever. The plebeians are trying to deny that they are to blame for banishing Martius. Uh -huh. The tribunes are just wishing that the ground would swallow them up. And the patricians are blaming the tribunes uh -huh. for forcing them to banish Martius and are ruining how weak they have been, especially Menenius. So there's a huge amount of conflict and Cominius, who knows about war, is convinced that Rome has absolutely no hope in this situation. So they're, they're desperate, they're on their knees, and in fact, they're going to go on their knees to Corinth. Literally on their knees, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the two greatest generals of their world are arm in arm, marching toward Rome. Desperate times call for desperate measures. So what's the first desperate measure that Rome, I'm just kind of like, I think it's just helpful to kind of like plot recap a little bit as we go. What's the first desperate measure that we see uh, executed from Rome to hope to to uh, thwart the attack from Coriolanus and Ophidius. They send they send Cominius. Meninius. First, what's that? They send Cominius as an envoy. How's that go? Well, <laughs> it doesn't go well, does it? It goes. Uh, it couldn't really go worse. Um, no. Coriolanus says that. He, so Cominius reminds Coriolanus that he has friends in Rome, noble friends. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And he says, he told me he could not stay to pick them in a pile of noisome, musty chaff. <laughs> he said, "'Twas folly for one whole grain or two to leave unburnt and still to nose the offence." So the whole metaphor again is to do with the famine 
and yes, right here that there's a superfluity of grain, and there are yeah. one or two grains that he considers worthy. And Menenia says, "Oh, that's me. I'm one of the grains." Uh huh. But he says, "I'm going to burn it to the ground. I don't care. It's not worth saving for them." So Cominius fails spectacularly. Spectacularly. Spectacularly, he fails. Um, what, what's um, next step? Rome's first envoy has failed. And what's the next step? What are they going to do now? Well, it's quite humorous. They want to send <laughs> tribunes. Uh-huh. And um, quite rightly, the, the tribunes say, well, we... Maybe not. Can, maybe not. We can't. I don't think we're going to be able to persuade him. We haven't got a leg to stand on. And so instead... I'm trying to think of like... In, like it, in a contemporary... If we were kind of like going to tell this story according to contemporary um, characters, who would the Tribunes be and who would Coriolanus be? I'm just... Uh, though that... The Tribunes are never going to convince never going to convince Coriolanus that he should pull back the reins on war. I'm trying to think of who would be like, I mean, it's kind of like sending uh, Barack Obama to try to convince Donald Trump or something like this. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's never going to happen. Mm. Well, sending the fake news media as he likes to call them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's like sending the fake news media to convince him to change his tactics or something like that. It's just, it's doomed from the start. The Tribunes are at least smart enough to recognize that it's just doomed yeah. start. I mean, the Tribunes, as we said in our last episode, are still reeling from their success in getting Coriolanus banished. I don't think they thought that that would ever be possible. So in a, in a strange sense, maybe they are the people to send. Yeah, maybe so. Because they've gotten, they're kind of riding high on their victory. <laughs> yeah. I think they're just so terrified of him. They just like, the, even if they thought they were the right people, they're so terrified of him. They would never go. Okay. So the, the tribunes are not the people to go. Who's our third, who's Rome's third option. Well, we now look to Menenius, who is in some ways the father figure for Coriolanus. And Menenius is not particularly keen to go either. He's, no. he's reluctant. He thinks that if, Coriolanus refused to hear Cominius, then he has little hope. Um, but Menenius is, I mean, he's an interesting character, isn't he? He's, yeah. he's very likable. He's perhaps the most loquacious character. He makes jokes, other characters don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he kind of keeps the people on side. He's also popular with the patricians. And so he does have that sort of smoothness and gloss that politicians require to be able to persuade people to do things. So he is the obvious choice. And of course, he loves Martius dearly. And Coriolanus holds him close to his heart too, as we've seen. Yeah. One of my first questions when we started discussing this play was, if Meninius is actually kind of the displaced hero of this play, if the play's primary conflict is not between Coriolanus and Ophidius, but between Coriolanus and the plebes, the many voiced Hydra, 
and that and that conflict is sort of irreconcilable throughout the play. But it seems like Meninius, although a noble, has the ability to to moderate between these two warring forces of Coriolanus and the people. Um, that was kind of one of my first questions, and I. So if I'm the director of this play, could I kind of help establish Meninius as this voice of moderating reason? I mean, and partly, I'll just be totally candid, partly is like if I had to fill out my political label, if I had to put it down on paper, I'd list myself as a moderate. You know, it's hard for me to be completely progressive. It's hard for me to be completely conservative, I find myself in this kind of moderating middle ground. And thus, maybe that's part of the reason why I find Meninius so compelling. He's such a compelling character to me because I see him as this moderating force. But I think his failure in Act 5, Scene 2 is such a, it's such a, it's not a triumphant failure. It's, Shakespeare doesn't set him up as this grand and virtuous character who just happens to not be able to achieve these very noble ends. I, I don't think that's how Shakespeare conveys him. He is a noble person, but he just, his attempts um, never get purchased with Coriolanus. And his his failure in some ways to me does not resonate as a noble failure, but just, he just fails. He just can't do the job. Coriolanus is just too aligned in his desire to punish Rome. He turns a deaf ear to Meninius and Meninius kind of limps home. He's, he's a subtle character as well, isn't he? Shakespeare shows how he can seem, Menenius can seem moderate and likable, but he also yeah. has a political objective. So we've seen how Menenius has used Coriolanus to gain a certain amount of standing uh, yes. in the Senate. When, when indeed he comes back from the Battle of Coriolis before he's won his name, Menenius gloats on Volumnia saying, he will have large cicatrices to show the people. Mm. Um, and so it's as if Menenius will get his guy into that number one statesman role, which then means he has a certain amount of leverage in yes. the state of Rome. Yes. And what interested me in Act 5, Scene 1, is that before Menenius goes, his question is, well... And say that Martius returned me, as Cominius is returned, unheard, what then? But as mm. a discontented friend, grief shot with his unkindness, say it be so, he wants to know how it's going to affect his political reputation. Yes. Yeah. So he can seem... So his... He can seem big-hearted, but he does always have a certain amount of self-preservation in operation too. Do you think that Shakespeare, that is a, um, an indictment? Do you think Shakespeare is indicting him in his kind of quest to be the politician who's working the angles? Um, there's no way that you could, that you could, 
here's what I'm asking. Do you think Shakespeare respects that he is a politician that given the circumstances, given these warring forces is attempting to kind of play the political game and yes, for his own ends and his own benefits, but also perhaps for the benefit of Rome. Is that a, is that a possible reading of the play, Sarah Jane? I think that's a good reading. I mean, is there any character or class of characters in the play that aren't indicted in some way by Shakespeare? Right. Um, nobody seems to emerge with um, a spotless reputation at the end of the play. Right. And for all of the patricians' criticism of the political wrangling of the plebeians and the tribunes, they are, of course, guilty of that themselves, as you say, because yeah. they have to serve the state. Yeah. So on a large scale, they, the play seems to be, at some level, a chastisement to the whole of English society to say, beware of what will happen to the body of our state if each member does not play its role. If yeah. the parliament turns against the king, if the nobility turns against the politicians, uh -huh. if we're divided, we cannot stand. And on one level, is, is Shakespeare sort of saying to England, look, we're better than, we're better than Rome. We, we wouldn't mm. make these mistakes now, would we? Mm. Now, I don't want to push that too far because I don't think that Shakespeare's plays are didactic. Right. But there's a sense in which people might leave the theatre thinking, hmm, how could I be a better citizen? How could I be a better leader? By having the, the mirror of nature held up to them from the stage. In theory, everyone could walk out of the theatre having found themselves in the play and looked at themselves in, that, in the mirror of the play. It does seem like if, if Shakespeare has an objective as a playwright, it does seem like that is perhaps foremost in his mind. I mean, we're taking cues from his speech in Hamlet about what a play does, what its, what its hoped effects are. And perhaps it does have the ability, perhaps Shakespeare hopes that it has the ability to have everyone see themselves through a character, through a series of characters put in these tense situations and seeing themselves and saying, gosh, I might react that way too, or I hope I would not react that way. And so there is, even though he's not, I can't remember the word you used, pedagogical, um, there is an edifying, there's such an edifying aspect, especially to these tragedies where when everyone loses and we can see ourselves at various points, how we might have interacted given, the, given these circumstances. And hopefully, yeah, we walk out of the theater and we say, oh gosh, I hope I'm not like the Tribunes. Oh my goodness, I hope I'm not, um, I don't have that sort of iron stubbornness of Coriolanus. Like hopefully we can see 
the various problems and these various groups that all come into conflict in this play and be able to walk out and say, um, let me go another way. Exactly. And for those members of the audience who thought that King James I pays himself of being proud, they might then wonder what the consequences would be of deposing or banishing a right. defender. Right. So Shakespeare explores that. And in that sense, he's true in this play, isn't he, to his classical sources and the, the idea that a tragedy is meant to be instructive of the state and is meant to reinforce the power of the state against the rebellious individual. Yeah. Yeah. We are now at scene three, Sarah Jane, the climactic scene of the play. Meninius has failed and returned home. And who does Rome now send in the hopes of turning Coriolanus back from his march? The most persuasive character in the play, of course. Right. <laughs> Not only his mother, but his whole family. And we've spoken before mm -hmm. about how this play is unusual in that we have three generations of one family all on the stage. I can't think of another Shakespeare play that does that. Um, and we've just heard in Act 5, Scene 2, Coriolanus say, mother, wife, child, I know not. My affairs are servant to others. Yes. And we know that Coriolanus suffers from a sort of excessive virtue where he's too absolute. Uh -huh. He despises people who are fickle and change their minds. And yet Shakespeare almost uh, kind of has a laugh at Coriolanus' expense or sets up this irony that Coriolanus yes. is going to contradict himself and change yes. his mind. Sarah Jane, let me ask you this. B before you hear Volumnius speak, do you want Coriolanus to change his mind? Or do you want him to kind of like hold fast and get his revenge? The, but the answer is going to tell you more about me than about the play. Well, good. Great. Great. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. I want to know. I, I would like him to sack Rome. I think that would be. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just love it. that You said it in this like very, um, affable, gentle voice. I would like it if he sacked Rome. <laughs> so great. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but please continue. That was it, really. I just think it would make great drama. See Rome burnt to a cinder, and um, Coriolanus and Alphidius could then divide the world up between them, a bit like Mark Antony, Lepidus, and Caesar in, in Jesus. Right. <laughs> Does any of you kind of like really want to focus on the scene where Coriolanus invading Rome kind of comes face to face with Brutus and Sicinius, the two tribunes? Is that kind of like the moment that you're looking for more than anything justice. else in the movie? <laughs> Finally, some justice. But Sarah Jane, I'm sorry to dash your hopes. It's not going to be what we get because Volumnia, the most rhetorically powerful character in the play speaks to Coriolanus. Um, I want us to listen to some audio of 
Vanessa Redgrave in the Ray Fiennes movie Coriolanus making her plea to Coriolanus in Act 5, Scene 3. That was Vanessa Redgrave in Ray Fiennes' movie production of Coriolanus. I have to tell you, Sarah Jane, I would be convinced. It's such a powerful speech that I, if I was Coriolanus, much as I would love to sack Rome, I think I would turn back too. Mom convinced me. She's very emotive and really tugs at the heartstrings here, which is she does. something that other characters can't do with Coriolanus because he never really shows them any, any tenderness. Whereas Volumnia clearly knows that there is a sensitivity to her son that other characters can't perceive. Mm-hmm. And yet, even after this, this, this doesn't fully persuade him. She appeals to so many different aspects of his pride and honour here. Again, um, she uses these descending tricolons, which is a rhetorical figure of speech. Mother, wife, child to see the son, husband, and father tearing huh. his country's bowels out. So yeah. she, she shows the triple duty that he has to the body of Rome. Yeah. And there's lots of imagery here of the body politic being dismembered by a son of Rome. The other aspect that she appeals to is his pride when she says... Thou, for either thou must as a foreign recreant be led with manacles through our streets or else triumphantly tread on thy country's ruin. This is a reference to a Roman tradition of parading their um, prisoners of war through the streets after a battle. And it's the thing that also really irks Cleopatra in Antony and Cleopatra, which is being written concurrently. She says, um, I don't want to be paraded through the streets like some sort of pantomime where some squeaking Cleopatra will buoy my greatness. Mm. So what they would do to bring shame upon the conquered individual is the, the prisoner of war would be in shackles being led through the streets and there'd be a sort of pantomime child performing the part of that character and mocking them really as they went really oh dear so you can imagine how that would appeal to the serious pride of Coriolanus absolutely so she's very pointed in her uh-huh. in her rhetoric not only in the style but in in the content the arguments that she's making and she makes even his victory if he achieves it Um, such a destructive victory for him. His wife, his mother, his child are going to be part of the slaughter, which I'll be honest, the first time I saw the play, I forgot that, that, of course, that would be the cost of raising Rome is that he's not going to be able to go single-handedly kind of like save his mother, his wife, his child. They're going to be part of the slaughter i just i it hadn't occurred to me and i wonder if it hasn't occurred to coriolanus either that this is what's going to happen because he never talks about 
oh, I'm going to lose my family if I march on Rome. He never discusses that. So I wonder if it's a little bit of a, um, a surprise. Oh, oh, goodness. Yeah, she's right. I, if I do march on Rome, I am going to have to basically, my, my family is going to go down in ruins. They're going to be slaughtered. I wonder if it's a surprise to him. Like he just kind of neglected this and his obsession with revenge. He has a remarkable capacity for putting things out of his mind, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He does. But he certainly is occupied with the dastard nobles who he wants to exact vengeance upon. But you're right, he doesn't seem to think about the details of his family. Right. And his mother uses... Um, a sort of metonymy to really drive this home where she she equates his home, Rome, with her womb and yeah. says that him marching on, Ro- on Rome is like him stamping upon his mother's womb and that this is the Ooh. ultimate um, rejection, disrespect that he could possibly perform. I, th- I think it's really interesting in the Fines film that at one point we see a bit later on Martius on his knees with his face in his mother's apron, mm-hmm. bobbing mm-hmm. in her lap like a little child. Yeah. And m- much of the rhetoric in this scene reminds us that Martius is born out of his mother. She is the honored mold wherein this trunk was framed, he says. Um, She claims him as her own, but she fashioned him. And so he really has no independence from her. That's one of her arguments. He has no independence from her. Thou shalt no sooner march to assault thy country and mark you her absolute shall. You know, she Uh tells him. Uh what he can and cannot that, do. That word that he bristles at so strongly when he hears it out of the mouth of the tribune. Now she gives him a command, likewise, using the same word. Mm. And he relents. He ends up relenting. He does. And what is it that turns him at this, this juncture? I mean, it's a very long exchange between them. There's so much right. imagery. Um his mother is particularly perturbed by his silence. He doesn't make any arguments. And if we think back to Act 3, Scene 2, where we have the sort of mirror scene of this one, Coriolanus right. is contradicting her all the time and asserting his will. And now he is simply silent. Mm-hmm. Mother says, why does not speak? There's no man in the world more bound to his mother, yet here he lets me prate like one in the stocks. And, and now her suit, her petition, becomes personal and she starts to convey to him a sense of personal injury, which then yes. escalates into a rejection of him. And the moment at which he capitulates is the moment that she rejects him outright and bellows After, at him across right. the stage. This fellow had a Volscian to his mother. So she says yeah. to, to Coriolanus, 
you are not a Roman. I am not your mother. I could not have given birth to a son like you. And that's the point when she changes. There's something so deeply psychological about this play. Uh, you, you can't unravel the play without trying to unravel what motivates Coriolanus. And I think this scene, we see it more than anything else because he is so silent. He has, the pages are voluminous speaking, arguing, cajoling, kneeling, standing, observing his behavior, but we get nothing from him. And so it makes us, it makes me wonder, okay, what is the motivate? What is happening inside of him? If he's not giving us any words about what's happening to him, what's the thing that really does, as you just said, turn him. And I, for, I wonder if it really is this, um, the threat of rejection from his mother, it does seem to catapult him into finally relenting. Now, does that mean that he was not softening as she spoke? No, not necessarily. Maybe he's softening the entire time and he just finally gives way under the threat of her rejection. But it does, it, it, it does this scene and his silence is just sort of a, this canvas upon which you, I, I am, I want to kind of like paint, well, this, these are the motivating, motivating influences that are at work within Coriolanus. And more and more as I get comfortable with this play, I see that his ties to his mother or maybe his fear of being in some way orphaned and abandoned seem to be a tremendous motivator for him. Exactly. And let's not forget what the audience can see on the stage. We have Volumnia, Valeria, Virgilia, his son, carrying probably the standard of Rome. And in many productions, it's actually the appearance of his son that really starts to affect Coriolanus. Work on him, yeah. And, and so his mother has strategically uh, put together uh, this... this like battering ram that's going to smash yeah. his heart and he's he's weeping by the end of the scene mm -hmm. we get this famous moment in theater where often it's played as, as a very 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 long pause where Coriolanus is holding his mother by the hand silent that stage direction it's been drawn out for as long as 90 seconds in some productions and that is such a long time 90 seconds is an eternity of silence because wow. Okay. Go. Yeah. There's, as you say, there's so much going on in Coriolanus's character here, and one thing that interests me is Volumnia is suing so hard on behalf of Rome. She wants to save Rome, and strategically, she thinks that she has come up with a foolproof plan whereby Rome will be saved, and her son will be an even greater hero than he would have been if he'd have right. attacked Rome. So she thinks that she has devised this plan that will um, mean that there's a kind of double victory. Rome is saved, her son is exalted. But what Coriolanus realizes is that that can't happen. And so his silence 
is him contemplating having to sacrifice his own life for the sake of Rome, which is metonymically his mother. I want to read some of his lines. So after this long silence, Oh, mother, mother, what have you done? Behold, the heavens do ope, the gods look down, in this unnatural scene they laugh at. Oh, my mother, mother, oh, you have won a happy victory to Rome, but for your son, believe it. Oh, believe it. Most dangerously you have with him prevailed, if not most mortal to him. But let it come. He does seem to recognize that, yes, she has preserved Rome, but at the cost of his life. Does Volumnia know that yet? Will, will she know that during the play? I think Shakespeare gives a director here a great opportunity to interpret. The stagecraft here is brilliant. The last line that Volumnia says in the play is, I am hushed until our city be afire, and then I'll speak a little. Uh-huh. So she is victorious in this moment. And she indeed goes back to Rome as a, a heroine. But she's, she has also brought about the downfall of her son. Because Coriolanus knows there's no way that he can honour his allegiance to the Volscans and compromise their military campaign. So she but never you think that the ever. actress... You think the actress could kind of play it either way. The, the, the actress, the director, could shape it so that she recognizes it's going to cost him his life in this moment, or maybe she doesn't recognize it. Is that what you're saying? I've seen the Hiddleston production and the Fines production, and those two explore those two different reactions. So Vanessa Redgrave never seems to acknowledge that she has sacrificed her son. She's flinty, isn't she? She's hard and like a, yeah. like a stone and she's unmoved. So there's no sense yeah. that she's recognized that she has sacrificed him. The stage production with Tom Hiddleston at the moment when Coriolanus says, most dangerously you have with him prevailed, if not most mortal to him, Volumnia suddenly mm. realizes what she's done and that it's too late. She can't now unsay what's been said. Yeah. And Coriolanus is now fixed upon a course of action that will end in his death. So the other question is... <laughs> Is she, is she willing, has she willingly sacrificed her son for Rome? With the foreknowledge that mm -hmm. if he gives in, he's going to die. I think she doesn't realize. I think she, her knowledge of politics goes so far and that the martial code that Coriolanus has entered into with Alphidius is beyond her ken. But she has essentially cannibalized her own child. Rome is now eating yeah. its own children. Yeah. But I, I think I hear you saying, like, she does not know that this is kind of, um, that his death is inevitable. 
And if that's what you're saying, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know. I, I can imagine the actress recognizing the moment mm. after he turns, but I think going into her speech, I don't, I'm not convinced that she would know that Rome has to eat, that Aufidius must kill Coriolanus if he relents. I'm not convinced about that. Sarah Jane, I want to go back to like something that Coriolanus does before his mother, wife, child arrive on the scene. Um, a curious thing. Shakespeare has Coriolanus describe the scene that he is seeing as his mother, wife, and child all kind of file in in front of the Volskys. And it's as if Shakespeare is kind of experimenting with maybe the first voiceovers of the Elizabethan stage. It kind of feels like that. Like, why do we have Coriolanus narrating? Here comes my mother, now my wife, here too my son. They're walking in, you know, like bowing before me. He has like this long monologue just describing the action of their entrance. Why is that happening? It's an interesting bit of stagecraft, isn't it? And there is a sense yeah. that Shakespeare is dramatically doing something different here. We've spoken about how he's moved away from the tradition of the soliloquy in this play. And in all the productions I've seen of this, this moment has worked as um, a sort of voiceover, which is unusual because in the play script for everyone reading at home, you can see there is no aside mentioned in the stage directions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So could it be that the characters simply walking onto the stage is not pageantry enough to convey what Shakespeare wants to communicate about how this is affecting Coriolanus's character? And he can't give a soliloquy because we have to have the other characters on the stage. So it's interesting. This, is, this play is written for a different theatre. It's not written for the Globe. It's written for the Blackfriars Black Theatre, which potentially is a much smaller stage. It's indoors. Maybe mm. it's much darker. Um, so perhaps there's a sense that Shakespeare felt he needed to add a kind of commentary here. It also gives us an insight into Coriolanus's character. But, but can we if, honestly, if the, if the Volshkins and his family can hear him saying this, then he seems to be rather exposed. Doesn't it seem so? He seems to be rather exposed. How? Well, he's, he's communicating sort of intimate details about how he feels about his relationship with his mother, for example. He says, shall I be tempted to infringe my vow in the same time it is made? Well, that's a crazy thing to say aloud in front of Alphidius. Yeah. He calls his mother the honored mold wherein this trunk was framed. And he says, but out affection. It seems like he, here he's trying to convince himself or prepare himself for this emotional onslaught. And strategically, it seems foolish that he would reveal all his weaknesses like this to the characters on stage. Does it, does it seem foolish to reveal it before Ophidius and the Volskins or before his family? All of them. Yeah. Neither of 
those parties should know any of this if Corinne yeah. is going to present a steely face and be unmoved and maintain his vow. But even as soon as they arrive, he's already said, shall I be tempted to infringe my vow? That already gives the audience a sense that he's not of stronger earth than others, as he says. Right, <laughs> right. Okay, okay. But what about this? What if he, he knows his mother very well. He knows how savvy his mother is. He knows that his mother is savvy enough to hit him where it hurts. Of course, she's going to go after these things that he's articulating on the stage. So what if it's in a way, I can imagine it two ways. What if it's kind of Coriolanus whistling in the graveyard? You know, he's articulating these things out loud in front of everybody because he knows they're coming. And so it's a way of sort of um, gaining the upper hand by saying, hey, I know the cards that you've got in your hand. I'm going to tell you what the cards are in your hand so that when you play them, it doesn't sting quite as bad. The other way I think that it might be able to be played is that maybe it's Coriolanus controlling the narrative. He's just saying what the narrative is and... um, He's just articulating like a grandmaster in chess. Here's where I'm going to move. The queen enters, but by narrating the queen's entrance, the queen's move, I'm still in charge of what, what it means. So in that sense, he's showing a sort of super confidence. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Maybe overconfident because he knows he's weak. He knows he's fragile. He knows he might give in. And so he's kind of, it's a little bit of bluster or maybe a lot of bluster that he's narrating this kind of parade that's coming in before him. Mm. And then dramatically when he fails, in a sense, this, this makes him uh, even more exposed or vulnerable. Yeah. Because he, he has claimed that he's going to stand as if a man were author of himself. Uh huh. And then in the next line, he says, like a dull actor, I forgot my part. And his right. mother is there directing right. him. Exactly. Exactly. I think those little kind of allusions to the theater make it, to me, make it feel like he is like stepping onto the stage, self narrating his most vulnerable and important scene in an attempt to kind of gain power over it. He's being overwhelmed here by so many different facets. He also has to cope with the kiss from Virgilia, his wife. Yeah. He's like Penelope. I mean, I don't know if there's any man who could stand as author of himself and resist this plea from Volumnia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, it's funny for, I mean, it is, it's an absolutely, it's the climax of the play. At the conclusion of this scene, we slip into the falling action of the play. And it's so interesting that Shakespeare gives us a scene that is so free for interpretation. I think unlike most climactic scenes, when I think of most of the climactic scenes in Shakespeare's play, I can think of different blocking choices, 
This character stands there. This character stands here. But with this play, it's more than just blocking options that are available to the cast and the director. It's like the very meaning and motivation of Coriolanus himself are, is the thing that seems most ripe to be interpreted in various ways. It's such a, and it never loses its power. I think the costume must really reinforce that. We see him in so many different guises, in Rome military garb. We see him in the gown of humility. Now, mm. presumably, he's wearing uh, Volshkin um, armor. And at another point, he's been covered in blood. Right. So there's yeah. a sense that he's the most manipulated character in the play. And that's one reading of him, which perhaps looks at him as a weak character. And I don't know if that's yeah. correct, but if we think about what his objectives are in the play, he is often pushed to the extreme of achieving something that he is the opposite of what he set out to do in the first place. So yes. he never wanted to be a consul. He ends up being expelled from Rome because of his mishandling of the election of consulship. He is intent on getting revenge on Rome. We see him being cut to pieces, having sued or framed a convenient peace between right. Rome and the Volscians. So is he really as autocratic, as absolute as he thinks he is? I'm not sure. He's constantly referred to as an oak, but the oak is blown over by his mother, by the breath of his mother. Words. That's right. He is the oak that's hewn with rushes. So he's wearing the oaken garland at certain points in the play. And he is associated with this emblem of strength, of unshakability. And yet that's right. Women's breath, a few drops of women's room can hew him down. Yeah. the oak. It's very sad. How he's chopped. It's very sad. Mm. But we go into five scene four, uh, kind of with an uplift. We've got some wind underneath our wings for five, four and Oh, Sarah Jane, it would be so easy to end the play here on a happy note. Rome is saved. We see Brutus being dragged through the streets by the people who he was supposedly representing. Um, Coriolanus has called off the fight. I mean, we're at a perfect stopping point, but Shakespeare does not allow that to happen, does he? No. And just before that good news comes to Rome, Menenius is shown to have lost some of his political guile. He's so certain that Coriolanus will not turn. He says he no more remembers mm. his mother now than an eight-year-old horse, than an eight-year-old horse would remember its mother. Mark yeah. what mercy his mother shall bring from him. There is no more mercy in him than there is milk in a male tiger. But of course, yeah. the audience has already seen him weep and capitulate 
and sign away his Volscan victory to his mother. So Menenius now seems not to know Coriolanus at all and to have underestimated the relationship between him and his mother. Right. And then, you're right, there's this inflated sense of joy. Good news, good news. The ladies have prevailed. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. It's so thin, isn't it? It's, it's such a yep. veneer. But the audience could easily be swept up here. But we know. Yeah, Aphidius, it's not. <laughs> Aphidius has said, when Caius, Rome is thine, then art thou poorest of all, shortly after art thou mine. So we know mm-hmm. there's going mm-hmm. to be a big detail because Aphidius is not done with him yet. No, he's not done with him yet. So, so we go into 5-5, five, five, the concluding scene of our play. Well, 5-5 five, five is another um, scene of pageantry. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, right. So again, it's really interesting. So we see Volumnia again, completely silent. She never says anything about this incredible victory that she's won. There are all kinds of um, trumpets and wind instruments playing. So there's this, this heightened sense of victory. And is Volumnia standing there having to bear all this in the knowledge that she has killed her only son and her beloved son. Right. Which, which makes it then extremely ironic and hard to bear. Yeah. I mean, could she be weeping? Right. Yeah. The poignancy of, of her situation is remarkable. And it's also remarkable that she has no words to, she just, Shakespeare does not give her any lines to express what's going on. No, and this is a female character who's always got something to say. Always got something to say, and and to say it with like exceptional power. We've and seen persuasiveness. her berate the tribunes in the street, and they're trying to get yes. away from her. And she's saying, "No, you stay. I'm going to curse you." And here she she has no more words. I doubt she would be crying though. I mean, Vanessa Redgrave wouldn't be too flinty. Mm. Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah. Rest in peace. So that's... Oh, what an amazing actor, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So that's a sort of, as you say, it's almost like a false ending to the play. If only we could go home. (laughs) Right, right. And yet we have... Everything should be patched up. And we move again now to a new setting. Back to the Volshkin camp. So at this point, five, six, um, do you think that Coriolanus can survive this play, Sarah Jane? Is his, he's with Ophidius, he's surrounded by conspirators, but also of um, politicians who seem to be willing and eager to broker this convenient peace. Is Coriolanus doomed at the start of 5-6? I would like to suggest that his death at this point is not inevitable, but that there are certain triggers that accelerate the conspirators towards murdering him. So Mm. what's interesting is that Alphidius needs conspirators at all. If Coriolanus was um, simply his prey, then Alphidius could kill Coriolanus in the street. 
He wouldn't need yes. to conspire to do this. And the sense is that the Vulcan society in Antium is like Rome, hierarchical, ordered. It is governed by a nobility. And Alphidius is not free to use Coriolanus as he wishes. So what we see in Act 5, Scene 6, is that there is going to be some sort of trial of Coriolanus. The Lord, one of the lords, the Volscan lords, says that he's grieved to hear what's happened. What faults he made before the last, I think, might have found easy finds, but there to end where he was to begin and give away the benefit of our levies, answering us with our own charge, making a treaty where there was a yielding, this admits no excuse. Mm. So Alphidius has to deliver up Coriolanus to this trial. And there's a sense that he could give a good account of himself. Could, he, could right. himself he could make a reasonable case for right. why he's done what he's done. After all, no Volscans have died in this conflict. But Coriolanus is no stoic. He's no. unable to be indifferent to the events as they unfold around him and he gets enraged. There are two words, I think, or three, right. three things that enrage him. The first one is that Alphidius calls him Martius and calls him traitor. Mm -hmm. I traitor Martius. Now, this is incendiary for Coriolanus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we look at his reaction, he can hardly believe it. And... Um, I'll just read what Aphidius says. I, Martius, Caius Martius, dost thou think I'll grace thee with that robbery, thy stolen name, Coriolanus, in Coriolis? And of course, this, this inspires <laughs> Coriolanus <laughs> to remind everyone how he won the name and how it wasn't stolen, but that he, he rightly won it for himself. Right. Probably not a great right. idea given the audience on stage. <laughs> Probably not. His wives, Probably sons not. have been murdered by Coriolanus in these very Yes. Streets. Yes. Um, I can't resist but hearing from my actor that I love so much, Alan Howard, one more time, Sarah Jane. I wonder if you'll humor me. Um, once he does turn and snap, at Ophidius, the kind of final moment before he can turn back, he snaps and he reminds Ophidius and the Volskis who are around him just what he's just what he's done to them. Cut me to pieces, Volskis. Men and lads, stain all your edges on me, boy. False hound, if you have writ your annals true, tis there that like an eagle in a dovecot, I fluttered you Volskians in Corioli. Alone I did it. Boy. That was Alan Howard as Coriolanus. Alone I did it. Boy. He just cannot tolerate the insults from Ophidius. And he snaps and... This is his demise. He is descended upon by Ophidius and the conspirators. And we see Coriolanus meet his fate on stage. It's so interesting that it's the word boy that really riles him. Yeah. It's interesting that Ophidius chooses here to, 
to bait Coriolanus with the idea that he's, um, he's somehow immature or weak in front of his mother. Yes. At his nurse's tears, he whined and roared away your victory. A few drops of women's room have cost them uh-huh. Uh-huh. this military campaign. And Coriolanus, is, is, it's then, he does seem immature. He's stamping his foot saying, I'm not a little boy. I won. Right. I fluttered your Volshkins in Coriolis. And we spoke before about how, did he really do it all on his own? Titus Lartius was there. Cominius was there. And right. then Menenius and his mother used a sort of propaganda to really um, exaggerate Coriolanus's performance. That's not to say he, he's not an incredible warrior. Of course he is, but he... But it does seem important for him mm. to kind of like tell himself as the great soldier who did it alone. Yeah, even if I didn't really. It seems really important. And he, he uses the opportunity to remind Ophidius that he did this alone. He fluttered the Volskis at Coriolis alone. He did it, boy. The other sort of tantalizing moment here is that before the conspirators launch into their murderous chanting of kill, kill, kill him, another Lord stands up and calls for peace and says, peace, ho, no outrage, peace. The man is noble and his fame folds in this orb of the earth. His last offenses to us shall have judicious hearing. So the noble says, pause, everybody, just calm down. We're going to deal with this using the proper machinations of the state. Mm -hmm. Coriolanus, though, doesn't listen. He doesn't listen. He draws his sword and continues to rile and shout. And he's so incensed and intent on fighting six Alphidiuses that he loses this opportunity to make his case and and probably be saved from this hopeless situation. Right. But he is too absolute. And his reply is to pull his sword. And what's interesting is, is after the death of Coriolanus, after he's killed, Alphidius seems to regret it. He's struck with sorrow. Mm. Take him up and help him three of the chiefest soldiers, I'll be one, beat thou the drum, but it speak mournfully. Yeah. It, it just recalls the, that time earlier in the play where Ophidius and Coriolanus, while they hated each other on the battlefield, so deeply respected each other off the battlefield. And now Ophidius's chief rival is, is done, is gone. And of course, yeah, it's not surprising at all that he's mournful. And if we leap forward beyond the end of the play, what, what has Volumnia secured for Rome? We've got this convenient piece that's been framed on the back of an envelope. <laughs> yeah. Number one defender of Rome has been killed. So who do we have I suppose back in Rome, there's Titus, Lartius, and Cominius, who didn't seem particularly confident about right. defending Rome against the Volscians. Right. Alphidius is unscathed. His army's ready to go. Yep. How long is this peace going to last? Yeah, right. 
So for the sake of saving face and saving Coriolanus's name, in the short term, Volumnia maybe has brought about victory for Rome, but ultimately this seems precarious. It does seem very precarious. It does seem very precarious. It's, it's another tragedy, unlike Macbeth, where everybody loses. Macbeth's bloody, people are killed, but the right triumphs in the end. But here, goodness, it just seems here that there are no victors and everyone's a loser mm. in some way or another. If we're going to learn something, say, say, Sarah Jane. Well, I, I agree with you with that reading of the play. I was reading um, a really interesting article by Peter Lightheart at Theopolis about this play. And he sees lots of Christian imagery at the end that Coriolanus is like a type of Christ who is the, um, the rightful heir of the kingdom, if you like, who is betrayed by his own people and is slaughtered beyond the city walls and his blood is sort of sacrificial. So he dies in order that the people might live. Um, and I thought that was also quite an interesting way of looking at the, the typology of the ending of the play. It seems hard to reconcile that with Coriolanus's um, hatred of the people. Like the typology of Christ, I understand him, him dying for the people. Um, but gosh, Christ went to the cross in love for the people who did not understand him. Coriolanus goes to the cross uh, driven partly out of hatred for the people that he's dying for. I can see the typology just seems like that part of it is kind of strained to me. Sure. I think it o he only applies it specifically to the ending, not, I not see. something that's mapped over yeah, the yeah. play. I don't think Coriolanus is an entirely convincing type for Christ throughout the play for the reasons that you've stated. Right, I yeah. Yeah. So um, I think Shakespeare does something really interesting here. So the last lines of the play, though in this city he hath widowed and unchilded many a one, which to this hour bewail the injury, yet he shall have a noble memory. Mm. Now, is there a sense in which Shakespeare has in a way assured that this general Coriolanus, who potentially no one really would have heard of, has a noble name because Shakespeare puts him into this play, which is then performed in London in the Renaissance thousands of years later. Huh. Uh, as we said at the beginning of the podcast in the first episode, this is a kind of an unusual choice. Coriolanus isn't really a major player in the history of Rome. And right. I quite like that idea that Shakespeare's flicking through his copy of Plutarch and uh -huh. thinks, oh, his mother really wanted him to have a great name throughout history. I think I'm just going to, I'm just going to give him one. <laughs> fulfill, I'm going to fulfill her wish. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to write my least loved, my least loved hero. That, that's that's what Coriolanus is to me. He's 
Shakespeare's among all the heroes, there's something tender about Lear that he's so broken, but he turns in the end, he relents in the end. There's something even about Macbeth. There's something about Othello that they, they lost their way, but we saw glimmers of genuine humanity in them before they lose their way. It's really difficult. The only moment of kind of like genuine humanity that we see in Coriolanus seems to me are those few occasions with his family and when he relents at his mother's argument. But otherwise, he is a a character that seems much more made of iron than of flesh to me. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm always surprised at how he seems almost desperate to impress Alphidius at times. I uh, yeah. But then I think that's more to do with his own sense of honor, his own excessive virtue than with any sort of affiliation. Obsequiousness. Yeah. Exactly. I think he's simply saying, look how good I am at um, honoring my word. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it's to Alphidius or whether Alphidius was anyone else. But in Act 5, when he comes back, he says, Hey, lords, I am returned your soldier, no more infected with my country's love than when I parted hence. Mm-hmm infected by his country's love. I love that. Infected. Mm. A disease disease that he can be rid of. Yeah, it's an interesting exploration of character by Shakespeare where he he looks at the danger of excessive virtue. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, Coriolanus can be a kind of opposite to Macbeth. Macbeth has an excess of vice. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's almost, um, is Coriolanus too much following the letter of the law or too much wed to his kind of uh, vision of the virtues that he, he can't place them in any sort of hierarchy. He can't put, the, 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 he has a chief virtue, that chief virtue, maybe it's something like um, integrity or honesty or forthrightness but how his affection for Rome, for the people, for Volumnia, for Virgilia, for his son, how those different loves integrate to that underneath or in, in relationship with that chief virtue of stalwartness, he seems unable to do it. Completely unable to do it. Menenia says his nature is too noble for the world. and. Uh what we see at the end of the play. Yeah. Sarah Jane, we have one more podcast questions and answers. There are plenty of things I'm sure that we did not get to in these five podcasts. Um, So we will have one more opportunity during that final question and answer. This has been a great pleasure. It has what a privilege and a joy to be able to discuss this play in the 21st century and to to take so much from it. It's so rich, isn't it? It really is. And that Shakespeare has made accessible to us, well, more than accessible, he's made entertaining to us um, a piece of ancient history. Right. I'm really looking forward to the Q&As. I love the Q&A episodes. I really enjoy thinking about the questions that listeners ask. Me too. 
Me too. They're they're always they're always for me the most enjoyable podcasts. So, listeners, if you do want to just engage about the play, ask questions that Sarah Jane and I can answer during the Q and A, that you can get in touch with us via Facebook at the Close Reads Discussion Group. You can also reach us on Instagram and at Twitter at Close Reads Pods and via email by writing to closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And don't forget our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. Sarah Jane, thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you one more time during the Q&A. So for Sarah Jane Bentley, for the rest of the Close Reads podcast crew, I am Tim McIntosh. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.